welcome to Eat Feed, the podcast that takes you back in time, across the country, around the world, and back to your own table. I'm Ann Bramley. On each show, we talk about food and cooking from a new perspective, historical, regional, international, and personal. Visit our website, eatfeed.com, to find everything related to the podcast, as well as lots more about food and cooking. In honor of the Independence Day holiday this Monday in the United States, we're traveling back in time to visit the Declaration of Independence's author at home and at table. We'll visit Monticello and talk with experts who have recently restored the kitchen and crafted a beautiful cookbook from archived recipes in the Jefferson household and family. Plus, we'll debunk those famous Jefferson food myths, explore 18th century cooking technology, and taste a famous vanilla ice cream recipe you can make in your own Independence Day kitchen. Beth Chuck is the publication coordinator at Jefferson's Home, Monticello, and she recently oversaw the creation of the cookbook, Dining at Monticello, in Good Taste and Abundance. In our recent conversation, she explained the origins of the idea to put together so much food information from Jefferson's life for 21st century audiences. Like many museums and historic homes, Monticello has long uh, thought about developing a cookbook, and over the years they've toyed with various concepts for a book that would celebrate the famous cuisine of Monticello. But in the end, we decided to emphasize uh, what has always been Monticello's chief asset, its authenticity. So we have 100 or so recipes that have been recorded by Jefferson, his granddaughters, family members, or have been uh, gathered in family letters. And so we decided to focus on those recipes and what they can tell us about this food at Monticello. Really, at the same time that we were thinking about developing a cookbook and we were getting more and more serious about that, our research about uh, the food spaces at Monticello was also coming to fruition. And the timing of these two projects really uh, presented an opportunity to showcase what we know about food at Monticello, whether through these family recipes or through essays that relay our staff's ongoing research or through uh, really lovely photography of the new kitchen or the vegetable garden or the food itself. So let me ask you about these essays. As I understand it, there are several supporting essays in the book that highlight mm-hmm. different aspects of food in Jefferson's home and his life. Could you tell us a bit about a few of those? Well, when we started choosing uh, recipes and planning for the book, we believed that probably a single introductory essay was in order, one that would give an, int- an introduction to dining at Monticello or that would portray Jefferson as sort of an epicure But as I talked with more staff members and I learned more about the research they've done and these engaging uh, stories about a food at Monticello, that one essay grew into 10 very readable, engaging essays about Jefferson's expansive interest in fine foods, about the African Americans who made this vibrant food culture possible, about uh, the world-class wines that Jefferson ordered from around the world and and served at Monticello. I learned about this uh, cutting-edge French kitchen that was placed on the Virginia frontier. And so um, we eventually ended up having Monticello staff members and outside experts write about their areas of expertise, sort of giving a context for how to understand these recipes and, and understand what was going on at Monticello. I think that as you flip through this book, it's actually very satisfying to read answers to questions that might be just forming in your mind. You might be wondering, how did they get groceries to Monticello anyway? Or uh, wasn't one of the enslaved cooks at Monticello trained in France? Who served as Monticello's plantation mistress? Or didn't I hear some story about Jefferson and tomatoes or ice cream or macaroni or vanilla? I think, as a result, it's a very comprehensive yet accessible approach to the subject. 
How about entertaining specifically during the presidential years? What can you tell us about that? One of the ten essays focuses specifically on Jefferson's entertaining when he was president in Washington, D.C. Um, she opens with, the, the essayist is Cinder Stanton, the researcher at Monticello. And she opens with a, a terrific story, I think, of um, Jefferson inaugurated as president at the Capitol. Immediately afterwards, he returns to his plain old boarding house and returns to what he uh, describes as his regular place. He calls it, I think, the coldest and lowest seat in the house. And he returns there just for, you know, plain old dinner. Um, by way of explanation, Washington, D.C. at the time lacked a lot of amenities. One senator described the city quite vividly. He said, all we lack here are good houses, wine cellars, decent food, learned men, attractive women, and other such trifles. Jefferson, uh, you know, stepped into Washington, D.C. as a place that really did lack fine cuisine, really did lack cultural amenities. And um, he took his responsibility as entertaining quite seriously. In fact, he was even criticized for it by uh, political adversaries because they figured he was currying favor. He was using this food to essentially purchase votes, I guess, that was the, the line of criticism. He actually had a different perspective on it. He explained that he did so because um, he felt that there was no better place than around the dinner table for, uh, for foes or friends to um, come to a new place of understanding. He really recognized the social value of food, and I think that's one of the larger themes of this book. What kinds of original documents are included in the work of the book also? Uh, one of the neat things about working on any Jefferson-related project is the documents. Since he observed and recorded so many things, uh, he made innumerable lists. He had copying machines at Monticello to preserve his outgoing correspondence. Uh, the documents recorded by Jefferson and his family have a special sort of intimacy. They reveal so much personality. So uh, surviving documents include several invoices and grocery lists, some of which Jefferson sent off to France asking for wine or olive oil or pasta, raisins, anchovies, mustard, vinegar, or Parmesan cheese. And while president, another sort of document would be his uh, weekly calculations of the average cost of dinner per guest. Another type would be the account books in which Jefferson family members record purchasing fish, poultry, and produce from Monticello slaves. Uh, there are also recipes recorded by Jefferson's granddaughters and attributed to James Hemings. He was the first of Jefferson's enslaved cooks to have been trained in French cooking. So much of any era's food culture is so ephemeral. It's quite remarkable to have these fascinating documents testify to Monticello's rich food culture and individuals who made it possible. With all these materials, with so much research and the archives and the recipes and these documents, how did you decide what to include and what to leave out? About midway through the project, I realized that with all of these essays, with so many anecdotes, with so many beautiful pictures, so many terrific and important recipes, uh, in order to cram all this into a 208-page book, I joked that I was going to need a shoehorn. But um, I really think that uh, our book's designer, Jim Gibson, did a tremendously good job of incorporating these essays, sidebars, captions, recipes, headnotes, color photography, period engravings, handwritten documents. One of the astonishing things about this project is everything that's in it. Uh, when I went towards the end of the project, I, I checked back against a list of things that I had brainstormed early on in the project, things that would be ideal to include if there were room. And when I went down this list, really, I found uh, virtually every topic covered. Uh, Dolly Madison being chided about the best way to butter a muffin? Check. Jefferson smuggling rice out of Italy? Check. 
Ellen Coolidge disparaging her grandfather's filthy refrigerator? Check. Uh, the contributions of enslaved cooks at Monticello and their family's culinary legacies? Check. I know there's a lot more. Uh, one of the agonizing realizations about this book is how much more we have yet to learn about food culture at Monticello. But uh, one of the satisfying conclusions uh, that I came to in this book is just how much we did manage to include in this project. Finally, if you could leave us with an image of this book, which is not only part cookbook and part cultural history, but also just a beautiful coffee table book, could you tell us about some of the photographs that highlight Monticello's food world? You know, any project I work on, I do have a sort of a starting advantage of a big archive of previous photography of this beautiful house, these lovely collections. But because this project is so food-specific, it called for uh, new photography, and that was a real delight. We had a, a local, a very talented photographer, Charles Schaffner, come throughout the summer and fall to capture the growth of the gardens. He also was given rain to explore nooks and crannies of the dining room and the tea rooms and to document, really for the first time, the unveiled kitchen restoration. So all those pictures, I have you know countless favorites of all those. Um, I just really think they are a new, fresh look at some of these spaces. But in addition, um, in the fall, I also had the privilege of doing some food photography with uh, a D.C. area photographer and stylist, Renee Comet and Lisa Cherkasky. And I have to say, it was a real thrill to see and taste these recipes that we have talked about at Monticello for so long, uh, sort of intellectually. It was a real thrill to see them, um, you know, visually and also to even be able to taste them. They look beautiful. They taste terrific. And another real special privilege of doing the food photography shoot was that, um, you know, all the food is real, of course, but um, in this particular case, much of it did actually come from the Monticello Gardens. It was harvested for me before my departure. So uh, almost all the food that is used is garnishing in the, um, whether in the interior shots of, say, the kitchen or whether in the food photography itself, it was all actually grown, you know, at Monticello, and in many cases, the actual varieties that Jefferson documented growing. On the show synopsis page for A Culinary Independence, Jefferson for the Fourth of July, you'll find links to Monticello and to the book Dining at Monticello in Good Taste and Abundance. And remember, when you use our website to purchase the books you hear about on the show, you're helping support future shows. Thanks. Next, culinary historian and cookbook author Damon Lee Fowler takes us into the recipes and ingredients of the Dining at Monticello cookbook. As the editor for the work, he first gives us some background on the recipes. Well, uh, all the recipes came from the manuscript collection, uh, which is scattered all over creation, uh, both Jefferson's handwriting his daughter Martha's recipe handwriting. Uh, many of them are done in her handwriting and, and in some of his granddaughters. So the recipes come from a lot of different sources because not all these papers are in the same place. But fortunately, uh, Karen Hess, who's a culinary historian in New York, has done extensive research and has put together all of the culinary collection into a single manuscript. So we worked from her transcriptions of the recipes and actually worked closely with her in discussing recipes that were pertinent to Monticello and ones that obviously weren't. Since you wrote the title essay on Jefferson's place in culinary history, could you tell us a bit more about our third president and his relationship to food? Well, Jefferson was fascinated with just about everything. He really was a, um, a Renaissance man. He 
he was interested in everything about being alive, uh, every little detail of being alive. And unlike most men of his generation, he was passionately interested in, in how the food was cooked. He didn't actually know how to cook himself, which ran us into trouble when we would try to translate some of the recipes he had copied out. Because he often made mistakes, he would um, not understand a French word, or he would, or he would mistranslate a French word because he didn't really understand culinary technique, and he would get the recipe a little wrong. But he was just every aspect of, of food, from growing it to how it came to the table, wasn't beneath his notice. There was nothing that was beneath his notice in that regard. And I think he's a little unusual in that, in that historically I think people were a little more conscious of that process than we are today because they were closer to it. Jefferson was a farmer, a rich farmer and, uh, you know, very much an aristocrat, but still basically a farmer. And he was very close to the land, so he was closer to the whole process of growing food than we are today. Jefferson seems to be one of those people about whom so many food myths are generated. What are some of the more popular myths about Jefferson and food that the book debunks or discusses in some way? Well, you know, one of the most famous is is tied to probably the single most famous recipe that we have in Jefferson's hand, and that's ice cream. Uh, it's frequently said that Jefferson introduced ice cream and vanilla into America because of that recipe, but of course that's not true. Ice cream was around already. Uh, vanilla was around already. His French chef complained that it was hard to get in America because he uh, scoured Philadelphia looking for vanilla beans and, and had trouble finding them. But a lot of those things tie back to the fact that he was such a, a connoisseur and such a pioneer in a lot of foods that it's easy to sort of idolize him and, and give him credit for having done a lot of things that, that he didn't really do. The ice cream is probably my favorite. Another interesting one is um, tomatoes because tomatoes had been around in South Carolina. Uh, we know for sure they were, they were growing them for food in South Carolina by the middle of the 18th century before Jefferson was even born. So he obviously didn't introduce Americans to tomatoes at the table. But, in fact, he even credited one of his neighbors with having introduced them to Virginia. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't really know. But Jefferson wasn't the only person who was interested in new plants and in gardening, and he had a network of friends that he would correspond with. He would send things to his son-in-law and uh, and to his grandsons-in-law. And he had a, a whole network of people that he would talk to about food in, in the form of letters. So a lot of those letters actually survive. And he's not the only person who was passionately interested in gardening and in growing new things, but he's probably the one that wrote about it the most. Let's talk about the ingredients, since you've included a lot of supporting material about the ingredients. Can you tell us a little bit about Jeffersonian ingredients and what you've said about them? Well, one of the most important things to keep in mind if you're trying to reproduce food as Jefferson would have had it was that it was very, very close to the land. The vegetables were grown right there on the mountaintop or they were grown in a very close area around it because transportation was pretty dicey in those days. So you didn't get food shipped in from a long distance away. 
So the food was, was very fresh. It was, of course, organic by definition because they didn't have chemical fertilizers and they didn't have chemical uh, bug sprays and insecticides and things like that. So when you're looking to reproduce the produce, then you want fresh, locally grown, organic if possible produce. And we know a little bit more about the specific varieties because Jefferson, unlike a lot of other people, kept detailed notes about the kinds of tomatoes he grew, the kinds of asparagus, etc. Uh, the other thing is grass-fed beef and lamb because we didn't start feeding grain to cattle until very late, and it's not a natural part of their diet. It really wreaks havoc on their system, and needless to say, their meat wreaks havoc on our system as a result. But it didn't exist. The grain-fed beef didn't exist in his day. So if you really want to do things that tasted closer to what he would have had, then you want pastured animals. You want naturally raised beef and lamb and pigs that have been allowed to forage, chickens that have been allowed to forage. The other thing is wheat. The wheat was very different. They grew it locally. It was mostly soft winter wheat, and it's so-called because it's actually, it actually is planted in the, in the fall and matures in the spring. That is a, a softer grain than hard red wheat that is used for bread mostly today. And what you have as bread flour today is mostly from hard red wheat. Soft wheat has a lower gluten content, so its texture is different. The way it reacts to the yeast and to the water, its moisture absorption is different. So the bread was very different. So if you want to reproduce the bread as it would have been then, then you want to try to find a soft winter wheat, which a few national brands like White Lily actually grow it. But what you really want is, is a, an artisan milled soft wheat flour that you can get regionally. Do you think as 21st century readers buy the cookbook and, and read it and cook things from it, are there any ingredients that might be particularly surprising or any taste that... Um, have just sort of disappeared as cuisine has evolved over the past hundreds of years? I think one of the things that they're going to discover is is how good the food is, how intense the flavors are, at, at once intense and simpler. Because the food was fresh and locally grown and more flavorful than most of the commercially grown food that we have now, you didn't have to do as much to it to make it taste good, and they didn't do as much to it to make it taste good. But they also liked really robust flavors. We used a lot of cinnamon in the in the book. Cinnamon sticks would be simmered in custards and instead of vanilla. Vanilla was still expensive and rare, and even at Monticello, where Jefferson, we know for sure, bought vanilla and they used it in the kitchen. It, it still would have been a rare commodity, and they wouldn't have used it as, as haphazardly as we do now. To give us a feel for the book, can you introduce us to one of your favorite recipes for home cooks today? Oh, there's so many wonderful recipes in, in the book. and One of my favorites is, again, going back to that vanilla ice cream. We had to do some guesswork in that, and Karen Hess was actually a big help with me with that because she did a lot of speculating about exactly how much a bottle of cream was because he, he calls for bottles of cream rather than a, a specific uh, volume measure that we can measure. And because it was probably translated from a French recipe 
we're not sure exactly how much the bottle was. But we sort of settled on the amount based on the other ingredients. But I think what readers will find interesting about that is because you simmer the vanilla bean in the cream, you get a subtler taste you don't, you don't get from vanilla extract. Uh, they didn't, of course, have vanilla extract in those days. And then um, the proportion of eggs and sugar is lower. So it's a subtler kind of ice cream, at once richer and, and subtler than modern ice cream. Not nearly as sweet, but really, really wonderful. You're famous as a chef and a cookbook author dedicated to Southern cuisine. Would you call the food at Monticello Southern cuisine, and would you call this book a Southern cookbook? Yes and no. Uh, I would call it a Southern cuisine. It's a blending, uh, just as all American cooking has always been a blending. Uh, Jefferson loved French food so much, and it's naive, by the way, to presume that he introduced French food. That's one of the myths about Jefferson that we hope to debunk with this book. Um, he had been exposed to French cooking. That's why he took James Hemings with him to France to train him as a French chef because he knew what he was going to find when he got there. He already knew what French cooking was like. But Monticello's table was very much a mixture of traditional Virginia food, which was sort of an Anglo-American kind of take on cooking. It was very... Uh, heavily influenced by the Cavalier cookery of the, the Virginia Cavaliers and this French cooking that he he had been exposed to and that he loved so much. So you find that in other places in the South, a little bit in New Orleans, a little bit in Charleston when the French Huguenots came in and down in Savannah where I live where the French Huguenots came in. But it's really kind of a blending. So... I would say that it's Southern and it's not Southern and that it's deeply Southern in that it's a blending of several different cuisines melded together, which is what all Southern cooking is. What was your favorite part about working on this cookbook and bringing it to life? Oh, I, I loved working on the recipes. They were, they were so much fun. And it was almost like having Jefferson and his daughter Martha and his granddaughters and his, his cousin Mary Randolph, who was a, a really big help with the book, because Mary Randolph published The Virginia Housewife in 1824, and it was heavily influenced by the cooking at Monticello. In fact, a lot of the French recipes that Jefferson sent home were passed around to Mary Randolph. And while Jefferson misunderstood the recipes at times and his his daughter and granddaughters misunderstood the recipes, Mary Randolph had a gut instinct about cooking that was absolutely on the mark every time. And so working with these things and working with Karn Hess, of course, in helping me to understand and translate the things, that was just very fulfilling. If you want to follow up on Damon's directions to use pastured beef and heirloom wheat, visit localharvest.org, where you'll find small farmers producing the ingredients that will make these recipes more authentic. You can find links to Local Harvest and to other books by Damon Lee Fowler, as well as to the recipe for Jefferson's Vanilla Ice Cream, on the A Culinary Independence page at eatfeed.com. for a few announcements. 
First, thanks to everyone who's been stopping by Podcast Alley to express their interest in the show by voting for us. If you'd like to help boost the show's visibility and you haven't voted yet this month, I hope you'll follow the link to Podcast Alley from the Eat Feed homepage and leave your two cents. Next, I want to officially announce the beginning of our summer recipe contest. Apologies to our listeners in Australia and other southern hemisphere countries whose interest in summer is probably pretty minimal right now. The gist of the contest is that we're looking for the best recipes based on the goodies you truck home from your local farmer's market, wherever that farmer's market might be. So whether you pick up Herefordshire lamb at the Borough Market in London, or Wisconsin rhubarb in Madison, whether it's California strawberries or sausages in Berlin, the only requirement is that you use at least one seasonal ingredient from your local farmer's market. Write up your list of ingredients, directions for cooking, and give it a title. Email your recipes to recipes at eatfeed.com and include your full name, your email address, your city and country, state or region where needed, and the name and location of the farmer's market where you shop. Optionally, also include the name of the farm or farmer who supplied the ingredients. We'll accept recipes until August 1st and then spend some time looking through them to cook up a short list in our test kitchen. The winner will receive an Eat Feed apron and a Good Grip spatula in Eat Feed Orange. Find out more details at eatfeed.com. Finally, we're heading off to the kitchen itself. Justin Serafin's background in architectural history and position as the Dependencies Project Coordinator at Monticello makes him the perfect person to show us around the newly restored parts of the house where in Jefferson's day, the recipes from dining at Monticello were originally created. They're the cellar spaces that contain spaces for wine, beer, essentially alcohol, alcoholic beverages, uh, storage. Uh, the kitchen is located at the end of the all-weather passageway on the east end. Next to it is the cook's room. There are a total of 16 spaces in the dependencies. Uh, the dependencies, that term meaning uh, essentially appendages to a dwelling, uh, 11 of which we, uh, we are in the process of restoring. And most of them uh, really do relate distinctly to foodways at Monticello. Some spaces that we'll be looking at in the future are the smokehouse, the dairy, the ice house. These spaces, in addition to the several spaces, the five spaces that we've completed thus far, uh, those spaces are the cook's room, the kitchen, and the beer and storage cellars. What is the difference between a kitchen and a cook's room? The kitchen is the uh, very orderly space where the food was actually prepared as opposed to the cook's room next door to that space. The cook's room was the the dwelling space for the head cook. Uh, her name was Edith Fawcett, uh, circa 1809. She lived in the cook's room with her husband, Joseph Fawcett, he was the head blacksmith on the mountaintop, and they had a total of 10 children. So that was their, their personal dwelling space, essentially, next door to the kitchen where she spent uh, surely the majority of, of her day, uh, basically sun up to sundown, performing all of the, the duties associated with multiple course dinners, the, the, the sort of two meals of the day, the, the kind of breakfast and the main dinner served uh, early afternoon. 
the various dishes required for both of those meals would have kept the head cook and certainly some some helpers in the kitchen busy with all sorts of prep work. Uh, and then after the fact, uh, certainly plenty of cleaning up work. What prompted restoring a lot of these spaces? A lot of these spaces were either empty or very, um, I'll say, very mildly interpreted. And with the kitchen being really the probably the, the biggest uh, oversight of them all, knowing the French influence in, in the cuisine that was served here at Monticello and building on the fact that uh, after 1784, all of Jefferson's cooks were trained in, in the French manner, the kitchen as it existed, uh, say, three years ago before we began work on it, uh, really didn't reflect that French influence. It had been architecturally uh, reconfigured in 1941 and then furnished in the 1950s and 60s and existed uh, pretty much in that state until we began work on it about three years ago. The, the previous kitchen, I'll call it the old kitchen, technically Monticello's second kitchen. The first kitchen was in the cellar of the South Pavilion. Uh, this kitchen is the 1809 and later kitchen. That's the date that we interpret uh, the space to, the post-1809 period. The, the old kitchen, before we began the restoration, uh, was really a, a perfect example of the sort of 1940s, 50s colonial revival, uh, rather romantic image of what <laughs> historians at that point thought early American history really looked like. And just based on plenty of research done here within the foundation over the past 20-plus years, it was just very much out of, of sync with what we knew to be the case here in Jefferson's Kitchen and what was being shown uh, to visitors there in the kitchen. That was really the, really started the, the, the process, really started, uh, was instrumental in, in beginning the restoration process to try to illustrate uh, more accurately what the kitchen looked like and more importantly, restoring the space and talking about the processes that took place there really allowed us to then emphasize and talk about the known individuals uh, whom we know through the documentary record and through other means, the, the known individuals uh, who, who worked in the spaces and in the case of the cook's room next door who lived in the spaces. So it was the need to tell the rest of the story, if you will, the sort of uh, the, the, all of the tell the story of the people who are living and working below stairs beneath the main level of the house and in the, the office wings in these dependencies uh, who were vital absolutely vital to the daily uh, running the functioning of the, the plantation and certainly everything food related that was happening upstairs and on the main floor of the house can you tell us a little bit um, about those stories about the people who inhabited those spaces and how their stories have come out through doing this restoration? Well, sure. It's just the notion of a French-trained kitchen staff uh, here, early 19th century, uh, Virginia Piedmont, essentially at that time, really on the boonies, if you will, to have a kitchen equipped thusly with 
enslaved cooks trained in the French manner, it was really, uh, really out of the ordinary. That story really begins with uh, James Hemings. Uh, Jefferson brought James Hemings to Paris with him when for a period of four or five years. Jefferson was in Paris. He brought a few slaves with him. There, James Hemings learned uh, French cooking from a, a Frenchman there in Paris. And then fast forward a bit, back here in the United States after a stint at the president's house, those skills were eventually passed down. Uh, James Hemings taught the French cooking methods to his brother, Peter. And so from there, these methods were, were passed down. And so it's safe to say that uh, after, after 1784, after James's arrival in Paris, uh, that, that those French techniques were practiced here at Monticello. Since Jefferson is known as a kind of inventor or at least an innovator or a tinkerer in many ways, can you tell us a little bit about the technology around the kitchen? Well, sure. It's uh, Jefferson uh, oftentimes uh, erroneously credited with inventing all sorts of things, uh, really was, was very good at, at, at taking uh, ideas and sort of adapting them to his own use. There are so many instances of that in the house, in Monticello, the, the building, and some of the the service kind of items that service and uh, and other items that Jefferson designed into the space are really for for convenience. Uh, things like the wine dumbwaiter that that allows a bottle of wine to be sent up from the wine cellar to the dining room. Uh, things like that. The stew stove in the kitchen I would put into the same category. Uh, such devices basically uh, very much like a modern stove, the brick masonry structure about waist high plastered on the, the counter surface uh, with openings uh, essentially uh, almost like separate burners. Uh, the one here at Monticello has a series of eight openings in three different sizes. There are cast iron inserts that sit on the counter level with uh, grates uh, at the bottom. It's about three inches, four inches deep uh, below counter surface, there's a grate, and charcoal would have been used uh, on those grates. And so each each stew hole opening you know, really serves as kind of its own burner. Um, and uh, Monticello's example, recently reconstructed as part of the kitchen restoration, uh, it doesn't necessarily follow some of the most cutting-edge uh, stew stove designs and some of the, the latest thinking uh, in, in stew stove execution uh, for the period. But nonetheless, its very presence you know, really, really underscores the emphasis placed on French cuisine here. If I could just ask you a last question about the smaller kitchen furnishings. Can, can you tell us about some of the smaller kitchen furnishings and the cookware and um, either what you've just brought in or what you've discovered or um, how, how the kitchen looks in that way? Sure. Uh, really, the core collection, uh, I'll call it, of new kitchen furnishings really is the set of, oh, at least uh, probably 60-something uh, pieces uh, total of antique French copper cookware. That collection of equipment is based on a 1790 packing list. There's a total of 86 crates. When Jefferson left uh, France, he had sent back 
total of 86 crates worth of worth of uh, objects sent back to the United States. A few of those those crates contain specifically uh, kitchen objects, and so with this packing list in hand, we've been able to recreate the inventory of French uh, copperware that Jefferson sent back. Uh, so it's it's nearly complete. Uh, I don't know that we we don't really have even enough space to be able to uh, house safely all of the pieces that are listed uh, on the inventory. But we have a very good sort of representative sample of those copper those copper uh, items, which are range from uh, saucepans, stew pans of various uh, widths, depths to um, more specific items that would have been used for beef specifically or fish fish kettles at Poissonniere, um, <clears throat> various sort of food-specific and dish-specific cooking vessels. In addition to in addition to the copperware, certainly uh, there there would have been the tried and true collection of both you know, iron objects, uh, certainly things like wooden spoons, uh, bowls, large large containers, and ceramics, uh, larger scale ceramic vessels, uh, most likely for transporting uh, transporting food down that all weather passageway to be plated and then brought upstairs. Uh, so the, in addition to this somewhat unique uh, and, and, and dear uh, collection of copper cookware, there would have been some of the more expected um, uh, kitchen items of that period, uh, including a spit jack, uh, which we've recently installed, uh, a continental example, um, above the fireplace that uh, the, the, the spit jack that would have mechanized the turning of, of meat or fowl uh, roasting on spits over the fireplace, uh, a weight-driven clockwork mechanism. Uh, not Certainly not new technology, um, but something that uh, would have been conspicuous by its absence uh, if, uh, if it weren't there. Uh, so some typical typical uh, technologies then combined with things like the stew stove and the, the copper inventory as a whole, uh, as a whole collection and as a whole um, working space, uh, that's really where it, it all comes together and is, and is somewhat remarkable. The That's it for this week's show on a culinary independence, Jefferson for the 4th of July.